This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to start with disclosures. I'm on the Scientific Advisory Board for VERTA, which um, in part studies and works with low-carbohydrate diets. Um, I think I'm still somewhat objective with this, but uh, I want to make sure you know a little bit about where I'm coming from. I have several learning objectives here. I hope that by the end of my talk, you're going to better be able to assess the reliability of nutrition studies. Um, You'll be familiar with the metabolic syndrome. You'll also understand, or at least have some understanding of something called the glycemic index and insulin resistance. You'll have more understanding of the differences between low-carbohydrate versus low-fat diets and what they have to do with longevity. Um, And you'll also know some of the evidence for whole food diets and diet patterns and health. Okay, so when I start to think about this, I think there is all this nutrition information coming at us from the media all the time, and it goes back and forth to the point where sometimes I feel like I have nutrition whiplash. So, you know, one of the things I remember... In my formative days back in medical school, we were supposed to get people off butter and get them eating margarine, right? Okay. Then we found out that the trans fats that were in the margarine that we were telling our patients to eat was about the worst toxic thing we could tell people to consume. And now Time Magazine is proclaiming, eat butter. But then we're being told by the Harvard School of Public Health, they don't really know, is butter really back? (laughs) So I'm going to try and go through a little bit more just to take a minute to to give you some, some guidance in how you actually really think about what's out there in the scientific literature and how it gets interpreted in the media. Um, so the background for this is nutrition science really is challenging. That's part of what makes it hard to kind of interpret all this da- data. The really highest quality studies I'm going to say a little bit about, they're expensive and they're not easy to do. Um, The media, though, loves nutrition stories, even when the data is weak. And it's sometimes hard to distinguish between really a good study and a weak study in terms of how it gets portrayed in the media. Another problem here is that this is different than a lot of areas of medicine we all eat. And not only do we all eat, but we all have our own personal beliefs and preferences. And I can tell you that not just out there in the public, but actually in the scientific community. I think this affects us in the scientific community as well. And it means that for me as a researcher, I feel like I've been schooled in all this science. I'm used to this really careful data-driven process. But sometimes when I'm doing doing research that touches on nutrition, I feel like I've landed somewhere that looks a little more like this. Um, And my stuff is getting critiqued not because of the data, but because I've just violated someone's beliefs. Okay, so I'm going to add to my disclosure, um, having said this part. So um, there's a few other things. So you know where I'm coming from. So I was a vegetarian for over 30 years. Um, I still eat a fairly vegetarian but not completely vegetarian diet. Um, I'm a recovering low-fat diet advocate. (laughs) 
I have a strong history of diabetes and prediabetes. I have three siblings. Every one of them, despite exercising and being reasonably lean, has prediabetes. Um, so, the, you know, when you start to get into nutrition things and diabetes, this is something that touches me and I think about a lot. Um, so, you know, my own diet, I actually follow a pretty low-carbohydrate diet, not because I think everyone should be, but um, among other reasons, I have this family history, which I'm going to touch on, means I think that a lot of people with diabetes probably do need to restrict their carbohydrate intake. Uh, I'm also a long-distance runner. This is actually from 10 days ago when I did 100K out in Arizona, so I'm, I won't get into all this, but there's some reasons to restrict your carbohydrate um, when you're in your diet, when you're training for for endurance events, so that's not something I think everyone should do, though. Okay, <laughs> the running or the diet. Um, okay, so I'm going to walk you through just an example of how to think about some of the studies that are out there in the literature and part of what gets confusing with nutrition science. This is a study that was in Lancet. So this is really one of the premier medical journals. This is a 2001 article, and the main message I'm going to walk you through here is vitamin C is great for preventing cardiovascular disease. So what's the evidence here? So um, if you look on the x-axis here, this is the level of ascorbic acid or vitamin C going from lowest to highest. On this axis, the y-axis, is your risk of getting cardiovascular disease. And you can see the higher your vitamin C level, the lower your risk of cardiovascular disease. So this looks great, and the authors concluded in this article, small increases in fruit and vegetable intake of about one serving per day has encouraging prospects for possible prevention of disease. So that's their conclusion. So this is the, the whiplash part. So this is the next article that comes out on this topic in Lancet in 2002. And it's a randomized controlled trial. And they added on top of the vitamin C, they added uh, vitamin E and beta carotene, which is essentially vitamin A. And they concluded, if you look here, showing you on this line here is, on this side is the placebo's better than the vitamin. On this side, the vitamin's better. So it's <laughs> placebo tended to be slightly better than, than, than vitamins here. So essentially, there's no evidence that the vitamins prevented cardiovascular disease. And if there's anything, there's kind of a, something going the opposite direction. So the question is, first, I want to ask, and I want to see a show of hands. So and I actually want to encourage people to not be afraid, just vote here. Which study do you trust more? Do you trust study number one? That's the one that shows that vitamin C prevents cardiovascular disease. Any hands? Okay, so a bunch of hands. Okay. Then second, who, who think would trust the second study more? Okay. You know, this is a pretty evenly split. Can I just ask one person for the first group who likes the first study more? Can you say why? Well, the other study came out just a year after, if I have the date. Yeah. And so it's confusing to me that there was studying one that was vitamin C, and then uh, they add vitamin yeah. C. Yeah, okay. And I guess the... <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. Okay. And you take a lot... Okay, great. So you take a lot of vitamin C, too. Okay. So that... <laughs> 
that probably makes the first study right, I think. But, um, but no, no, this is one of the things that's really, it's a challenge for us because um, all this involves things that we do and, and um, believe there's evidence for. So part of it is that, am I getting it right? The second study mixed in other vitamins too. Is that one of your? There was, I can't remember his name, but someone many years ago did a lot of studies on vitamin C. Yeah. Linus, Linus Pauling, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, one more thing. Do you want? To, you have another question? Were these studies done with people taking the, the vitamins in pill form, or actually getting it out of food? Yeah. So great question. So that in the second study, the first study is just drawing blood from people. They're not doing anything. All they're doing is drawing blood and seeing what happens. They followed people for four years and watched if they developed heart disease. So they're not changing anything, and they're just using a blood test to see how much vitamin C are people getting in their diet. The second one, people are being given pills, and something is being essentially done to them that they're not doing naturally with their diet. So I want to hear one person who who liked the second study more in terms of reliability. So uh, just there are two people right next to each other, but maybe, uh, no, you're in the... We're a little closer. Yes. Yeah, well, do it. Well, the main thing is that I've, I've heard a lot about vitamin C, but I never heard that. And I, okay. I, I okay. That if that were true, I would have heard it a lot. Okay. Okay. So, um, okay, great. So you would have heard more. So I'm going to just get one more hand. Can I just, you were right behind. Um, would you? I, uh, the fact that the second study involved with placebo okay. gave me greater confidence. Okay. So, so this is, Okay. So I'm hearing the second study had a placebo, which gives you greater confidence. So I'm going to give you my take in a minute. Um, but I'm going to show you an interesting thing here. So there was a whole assessment of this issue in Lancet in 2004. So this is like the third article on this. And you can see here, this is people in different levels of vitamin C intake. So um, this is the lowest here. This is going to the highest. And you can see the people in the highest quartile they exercise more than twice as much, okay, or twice as many of them are getting more than one hour of exercise per week. So what's going on here? So is the vitamin C making people exercise more? <laughs> Probably not. It, what's going on here, we think, is that people who get more vitamin C are doing all kinds of other things differently than the people who get less vitamin C. They are exercising more. They're smoking less. Their diet is better. They have higher socioeconomic status. They're doing about 100 other things, and they tend to be more health conscious. So that first study was what we call an observational study. And the advantage of it, the reason we do these in part, is they're much less expensive. We're not doing anything. We can get hundreds of people, and then you know we just measure their blood level of, of vitamin C, but we don't have to do anything else except see what happens. They don't require people to change eating behavior, and some of these kind of studies are not the easiest thing to get people to actually do what we're telling them to when it comes to diet, but they are more susceptible to bias because the people who eat differently do all these other things differently as well. And if you look at that first study, they didn't actually even control for any of those other things. So as a researcher, that study is much weaker 
The second study is, what we, is a randomized controlled trial. And the evidence, I think, is more solid from something like that because we have a clear comparison that takes out, for the most part, all these other factors. You could, were the people getting more or less vitamin C is not because I love to exercise more and I'm doing all kinds of other healthy things. It's because I got given a vitamin C pill instead of a placebo. <laughs> Okay, so this is something to keep in mind when you're reading diet studies and you're hearing about it in the media. If it's a randomized controlled trial in general, it's probably more reliable than a lot of other study designs. So we may have a, we'll have a little time for questions after this, but I want to move on to another issue here. And this is tying this whole topic into longevity. And the issue in the middle here is this thing. How many people have heard of metabolic syndrome? So mo most of you. Okay. So this has got several parts. And one part is that you've got visceral adiposity or more fat around the abdomen. The second part is that you have basically bad lipids, so low HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol, high triglycerides. You tend to have high blood pressure. And a key thing, which I'm going to talk about here, is insulin resistance. So this is either diabetes or prediabetes. And all of these together make up metabolic syndrome. And the issue here is that metabolic syndrome means that you have a much higher risk of things happening like heart attacks and stroke. So why are people developing metabolic syndrome? A critical thing probably is insulin resistance. So this is really important to understanding metabolic health, so I'm going to spend a minute on it. Insulin acts kind of like a key here to open up the gates on cell membranes so that glucose can enter and get used. Without insulin, glucose doesn't go into the cell well. When you have insulin resistance, this lock is very sticky, and instead of it opening easily, you have to really force it, and essentially you have to use a lot more insulin to get that door open than you would normally. So what are the consequences of that? There are a lot, including increased inflammation that you get when you have insulin resistance, but I'm going to show you just one thing here. So this is a study where it's showing different levels of hemoglobin A1C. That's a measure of how much glucose you have on average. And if you look here, anything to this side of the red line is prediabetes or diabetes. And as soon as you start going from normal down here, up here, you start getting a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So even in this level, and this is not much off normal here, you start to get elevated cardiovascular risk as soon as your hemoglobin A1C levels go up. The other part of this, why this is such a concern, I think, right now, and this is true a lot in the United States, but actually around the world now, there is a huge increase in diabetes. So this is looking back to 1958. Only about 1% of the adult population in the United States had diabetes. We're actually up to about 8% right now. So um, we have at least a sevenfold, more like an eightfold increase in diabetes in my lifetime. So this is a really remarkable change. And part of this is probably happening through changes in, in physical activity, but a lot of this is probably happening through changes in diet. Okay, so now I'm going to turn to studies that are um, really in the... the diet field, looking at randomized controlled trials, which again I think are the most reliable 
way of looking at what diet makes a difference. So this is a study that some of you may have heard because it just came out a little over a week ago. It's been in the media, including the New York Times, um, and with a message in the New York Times headline, the key to weight loss is diet quality. So what did this study do? So this was done by Chris Gardner down at Stanford, who is, I think, a good researcher. He studied a little over 600 adults who were overweight and wanted to lose weight. Everyone got one set of instructions with whichever group you were in, which was essentially to cut out junk food, no sugar, no sodas, um, and to cut down on refined flours like white bread and trans fats. Then they were randomized to one of two groups. So one group here, the low-fat group, was instructed to eat lots of vegetables but combine it with things like brown rice and beans and things like that cooked in a way that they're low-fat. Or to this low-carb group where they also emphasized fresh vegetables but that you know the broccoli might be prepared along with Parmesan cheese and a lot of olive oil. So what did they find? After 12 months they found that weight loss was pretty much equal in both groups. Slight trend toward the the low-carb group doing better, but not any probably substantial difference. Same on fasting glucose, except the trend, somewhat surprisingly, was toward better improvement. And this is a measure, essentially, of whether people are likely to go on to diabetes. They were studying people without diabetes, so that was not an issue. But fasting glucose got better in both groups, but a little bit more in the low-carbohydrate group. Um, So the question is, what are the the take-home lessons from this? So I'm going to come to that in a minute, but I first want to emphasize one point here, which is this diet that is low-carbohydrate is a pretty special low-carbohydrate diet. They were really trying to lower what's called the glycemic index of the carbohydrate-rich foods. So um, what that means here, the glycemic index is something where you look at, given a certain amount of carbohydrate, 50 grams, how much does your blood sugar go up and how quickly? And they calculate the entire area here over two hours of how much your glucose is above normal. This is what it looks like in orange here if you get 50 grams of straight glucose. In blue is what happens if you get the same amount of carbohydrate, but it's in beans. So you have a much lower peak and much lower elevation total of glucose if you get the same amount of carbohydrate from beans. So the beans have a lower glycemic index, and they create a ratio between glucose and beans, and that is your glycemic index. And it's multiplied by 100. It's a percent, essentially. That gives you the glycemic index. This is in your handout, but there's a a great website that University of Sydney does that they've compiled a ton of the data on glycemic index on all kinds of different foods if you're interested. So you can check that. So I'm going to ask a question here. So um, looking at, at white bread, any guess about what the glycemic index is? So glucose is going to be 100. What? Yeah. Any numbers? Okay. So it's, it's 75, okay? So, you know, it's lower than straight glucose, but it, it's not a lot lower, okay? Um, so this, any people know what this is? This is actually farro, which is also wheat like bread, but this is actually a slightly older variety of wheat. It doesn't actually have as much gluten in it as our, our and, and starch as our current wheat does. 
and it's actually really whole grain. It's not been ground into flour. So this is used a lot in different Mediterranean cooking. Um, any guess what the glycemic index is here? So it's going to be low. People are guessing lower, so it's 40. So it's essentially half of what bread is. So same basic ingredient here, but it's very different if it's surrounded by fiber in a whole grain. It gets digested much much less rapidly, and you don't get as big an increase in glucose. So take-home messages. This diet suggested, and I didn't focus on this, but this is a key thing. They focused on food quality. They did not tell people to count their calories, and yet people got good weight loss. They got over 10 pounds in a year without counting calories. So the message from this is, Focusing on food quality probably matters. And this goes against the grain of some diet advice, which is that it doesn't matter how you get your calories. What you have to do to lose weight is just count your calories and reduce them. And this is suggesting if you don't count calories but focus on the quality of the food you're eating, many people can successfully lose weight. That's not going to be true for everyone, but for a lot of people. The other message here is that This is people without diabetes. For that group, having a low glycemic index diet may work as well as for losing weight as having a low-carbohydrate diet. So those are, I think, two of the key messages from this. So I'm going to move on to talk about another somewhat related topic here. They cut out sugar, right, from this diet. The question is, is that really a problem in metabolic health? Um, So... The the study that I love the most for this, this is a study that was done in the Netherlands of sugar-sweetened soda, and they took over 600 normal weight children who were between 5 and 11 years old, studied them for 18 months, and here's what they did. They, They were all kids who were already consuming some soda, and they gave them free soda, free supply for 18 months, one per day. And it either was a cola, eight ounce bottle, 250 ml, um, one one of those per day with sugar or with sucralose. And the kids were blinded, and actually most of them couldn't tell which one they were getting. So the question is, did that really make a difference? And the answer is yes. This is actually, to me, almost shocking. But if you look at 12 months here, there is a real difference in weight just based on getting one small soda per day over that year-long period. And it's a, it translated into a one kilogram or 2.2 pound difference on average just from that one small cola per day. So I think this is fairly conclusive evidence that having sugar in your diet in the form of something like soda actually is not good if you're trying to maintain weight. So the, the next question I want to talk about, so I was telling my running partner this weekend about this last study, and she said, is there anything, though, between the low-fat and the low-carb diet? Like, do you have to do one extreme or the other? And the answer is yes. I think there's some great data on it. This is a study I also love. This is the Predimed study, and it comes from Spain. They took over 7,000 people. So when I'm talking about these are hard, expensive studies, this is an unbelievable study they did. Um, So 
they followed them for, for several years and they randomized them to one of two diets. So diet number one was actually American Heart Association guidelines at the time when they started this study for a low-fat diet. So this was aiming for 30% or fewer of your calories coming from fat versus this diet. And I, I may be showing you my bias from the pictures I used. Um, but this is a Mediterranean diet here. And in the Mediterranean diet, they, all, they had a, two subgroups. One got extra olive oil, a supply of it, or a, uh, extra nuts, walnuts. But both groups were, were encouraged to eat all these kind of foods. So um, this group, the, the second group, actually got significantly more fat, so more than 40% of their calories coming from fat. What would you think would happen? So I can tell you the American Heart Association was recommending this diet, right? Okay. These are all people with high cardiovascular risk, so you get to see what happens in a minute. So this is what happens in terms of the primary endpoint, which is having a heart attack or a stroke or dying from a cardiovascular event. And this is the control diet, and this is the Mediterranean diet. So by five years here, there's a substantially lower, 30% lower risk of these bad cardiovascular events happening in the higher-fat Mediterranean diet. Okay, So this actually kind of put the nail in the coffin for the low-fat diet, I think, for, for, as the answer for cardiovascular disease. Um, and there's several take-home messages from this. So one of them, I think, that Mediterranean diet did somewhat similar to the Gardner study, emphasized whole foods, cutting out junk food, refined flours, a lot of that kind of stuff. So a diet in this kind of uh, form that was high in whole foods and healthy fats, including nuts and olive oil, um, actually lowered cardiovascular disease compared to a low fat diet, and I didn't show you this, but there's other, a ton of other data coming from the study. They've also shown decreases in, in cancer and a variety of other conditions in that Mediterranean diet group. The other kind of key, to me, take-home message here is people in that low-fat diet, at least in Spain, they had a really tough time sticking to it. So they did not get down to the 30% um, a fat intake goal in a lot of cases, which has been critiqued as maybe people didn't do it well enough. But they put a big effort into this, and I just think it's it's easier to use the kind of broader Mediterranean diet than it is to follow the low-fat diet. So that, that, to me, is a second message from this. Okay, so I told you at the beginning, I'm not going to get into all why I'm using a low-carb diet, but there is this whole question, like, are there, is there a role for low-carbohydrate diets? And I, I think there is, and I'm going to go through a little bit why. So to understand this, the different forms of low-carbohydrate diet, what I'm talking about next is actually what's called a ketogenic low-carbohydrate diet. And what this means is that it's a diet that's low enough in carbohydrate that you really drop insulin levels down to a point where your liver starts making these things called ketones. And the reason ketones are important are this part here. So your brain runs on only one of two fuels, either glucose or the only alternate fuel is ketones. If your brain doesn't have one of those two things, you die within minutes, okay? So 
this is the backup fuel, actually, for the brain. And if you're on a low enough carbohydrate diet where your body is getting lower in glucose, your body does start making carbohydrate as an alternative fuel. And it's one of the ways that we can monitor people to see if they're really restricting their carbohydrate intake substantially. So we did a study where we randomized, and again, this is it's smaller, but it's a randomized controlled trial. We took people mainly with diabetes, a few people with prediabetes that were close to diabetes, and we randomized them to one of two diets. So one is a medium-carbohydrate diet, which is basically what has been a standard recommended kind of diabetic diet. Um, this has, for people who are interested, about 150 to 200 grams of carbohydrate per day. Or we randomize them to follow a low-carbohydrate diet. This is down to about 50 grams or less of carbohydrate per day. And this is the key thing we found. So the hemoglobin A1C, again, this is this key measure of glucose control. It got substantially better in the low-carbohydrate group compared to the um, medium-carbohydrate group. And it was a 0.6-point improvement in hemoglobin A1C, which is clinically a pretty meaningful improvement. And I would add this was in the face of the low-carbohydrate group made substantial reductions in their medication use at the same time. What this suggests is, at least in people with diabetes, and the main thing I'm going to emphasize here is I would not recommend this for everyone. I do think people with diabetes, type 2 diabetes, in general, that means you're not handling carbohydrate well, and you may do better if you restrict your carbohydrate intake more. The final thing, and I'm doing the, covering this in the, the kind of framework of looking at diet and longevity, this is a study that is a mouse model study, and I think you have to have a lot of caution extrapolating from mouse models to human models when it comes to diet in particular because our metabolisms are not exactly the same. But um, this was done by Eric Verdon, who is at the Gladstone Institute here, a very good researcher, and his group looked at feeding mice on a diet that was either ketogenic or a kind of control typical diet. And they found a couple of key things. So there was actually better memory um, in the mice. Um, They have some memory tests, so their memory was actually better in the ketogenic diet group. And they had a a longer lifespan and lower midlife mortality. So there's some evidence of benefit for longevity. And the basic thesis here is that ketosis, when you start to make ketones, is a signaling system that a little bit similar to if you know um, fasting diet work, it does the same kind of thing and it may send out signals that affect other systems in the body that might increase longevity. Now, I'm underlining might here because I think this is speculative, but it's something I think to follow in the future. So, Overall conclusions here. So one is, when you're hearing about diet studies, pay attention to the design. Was it really a randomized controlled trial, or was this just observational data? Um, I think there's evidence right now that supports for a healthy diet emphasizing whole foods and probably low glycemic index for metabolic health. Many traditional eating patterns may work. So I covered the Mediterranean diet, but I actually think if we roll back the clock and look at what people were eating in the past before we had so much diabetes and so on, um, a lot of those diet patterns really work for what I'm talking about. So, for example, um, my wife and I eat a lot of Indian food, and if you look at traditional Indian food, um, that is potentially really consistent with these kind of diet patterns that I'm talking about. Um, 
the final thing is if you have um, if you have diabetes, then for meta- good metabolic health, you may need to restrict your carbohydrate more. So those are the key points I wanted to cover. Yeah, yeah so the, the question is, why don't we know, why don't we really know what a healthy diet is, right? Uh, and, and my answer would be that there are a lot of things that we do know. There's just a lot of unanswered questions. And I think the reason we don't have more solid evidence is these studies are not easy to do. And honestly, I actually think we've fallen down a bit in terms of funding the kind of research we really need to do on this, Um, partly because they're hard to do, partly because, I'll just tell you, there were a ton of big studies using things like low-fat diets that didn't work very well. I didn't cover all of them, but they didn't do what people thought they would. And in this country, people got discouraged about even doing large diet studies. So I think that's changed a bit now. I think there is more research coming out, but we need more of it to answer these questions. Yeah. So so the question is just in other countries, like in Spain, people uh, eat essentially more whole foods, they spend more time eating, they eat together, absolutely. So I think all of those things do tend to go together. And so, you know, these studies really emphasized, again, the whole, the whole food aspect, getting, um, you know, plenty of vegetables, um, fruits, and using, if you're going to have any grains, real whole grains as much as possible. I do think, and these studies didn't cover it, but I think that thing of, of kind of eating more slowly and with people probably makes a big difference. Um, but there's not, I mean, there's some data on it, but there's not that I know of good randomized controlled trials because they're not easy to do. Okay, so the question was, can I talk about glycemic load as well as glycemic index and how to kind of put those together? So I, I focused on glycemic index, which is something that is a characteristic of the food itself. With, um, glycemic load has to do with how much, it, it, you, how much carbohydrate is in the food plus how quickly it enters your system. So um, so some foods that might have, quote, a high glycemic index, if you take a small portion or they don't have much carbohydrate, the total load on your system is, is lower. So I, I think glycemic load is probably really one of the really key things here. Um, it's a little harder to think about that sometimes when you're choosing foods, but I do think glycemic load is a, a key thing. And, and for pre-diabetes, that's probably the most important thing. So you may be able to tolerate small amounts of food with a higher glycemic index as long as you're not getting a lot of it or a lot of, uh, or a food that has a lot of carbohydrate in it. So the question is, are pre-diabetics included along with diabetes? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a whole other question. So uh, honestly, and I'm just giving you my view as a physician, people talk a lot about hypoglycemic. There, there is not serious, medically serious hypoglycemia um, as a condition, except in rare instances. What we talk about a lot of having hypoglycemia, I think, is people are bouncing up and down and are getting, for example, a lot of sugar or something that's boosting up their glucose, and then they're getting the crash. So, um, so there, I think the answer again is is more having something that that keeps your sugar level at a more steady level, which involves having lower glycemic index foods. So, I think I'm trying to. Okay, so one more question. I'll go back to this side. Yeah, I didn't address the consumption of alcohol. So, alcohol gets into a whole another topic. Um, this is actually something my wife researches, um, but. 
you know, there's, there's some data that suggests a small amount of alcohol, like one glass of wine per day, might actually be good for you. There's a lot of controversy about that because there's concerns about who that group is that are not drinking at all. I, I think the data, to me, suggests that, that in moderate amounts, like one glass or less of wine or, or the equivalent of other alcohol, maybe okay. Um, I, I think there's pretty good data that if you go above that, it's probably not good for your health, though. Okay, so I should, I'm going to wrap up here. I'll be available for a few minutes afterward for questions. But thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.